Please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We'll be looking just at one verse, as you know, this evening. Very familiar verse in this great chapter, John 3, 16. Remember, though, despite its familiarity, as I read and as you follow along, remember, this is the Word of God. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Our God, you have given us your word for our benefit, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the wisdom that is bestowed on us through your word. And we thank you that your word is alive and is active and that your spirit works through your word so that your word will never return to you void but will always accomplish your purpose. Father, we ask this evening in this place that your spirit might be at work with with great power, opening our ears to the message of your word. Father, may we receive it with humility Cause it to work in us, the fruit of the Spirit. Please lift up your Son in our midst, and we ask this in His name. Amen. Well, this is a very familiar verse. If you've grown up in the church or really spent any time in the church at all, you'll know John 3.16. There was a time, actually, even in the broader culture where this was a well-known verse. I can remember certainly many Saturdays watching games and, and you could hardly see an extra point without someone holding up a sign that had this reference on it, John 3.16, and apparently people knew what that meant, knew what that signified. And there's a danger in that, of course, and the danger is that we become so familiar with the teaching of this verse that it's so common in our understanding that we fail to give proper attention to it. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that this verse was actually the Bible in miniature, that all the great themes of Scripture converged in these few lines in John 3.16. And because of the depth and the breadth of this Bible in miniature that we have here, there are many different ways that we could tackle it. I want to look first, though, at the context of this verse as we look at it together. The context, of course, is in the the broader uh, context of John's gospel. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this gospel, and he tells us precisely why he wrote it. At the end of the gospel, he gives us a purpose statement. John says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If we were to draw a little narrower circle uh, into the chapter, John chapter 3, we would see there's another context here, and the context is Jesus' conversation with this Pharisee named Nicodemus. As Jesus' ministry was beginning to gain a foothold, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, visited him in the middle of the night and wanted to ask him all kinds of questions, and Jesus confronts him with one of the most important truths that all of us should be confronted with in this life. He says, uh, you must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And as a result of Jesus' statement, uh, a discussion ensues between Jesus and Nicodemus because Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying when he says you must be born again and unless one be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus asks a series of questions and Jesus gives him a series of explanatory answers about the nature of the new birth, about the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, at one point in John 3, Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And Jesus is saying that because it was revealed in the Old Testament and Nicodemus should have understood that. Now, as Jesus progresses through his discussion of the new birth, he then goes directly to his coming crucifixion in verse 14. He says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that sets the stage for this significant verse. And I want to say that this verse introduces a number of important themes to us, but the first important theme that we have to give attention to in John 3.16 is the love of God the Father. This is a popular theme today, the fact that God is a God of love. You'll have all kinds of people who really have no knowledge of Jesus Christ who will nonetheless say God is a God of love. And the thinking goes something like this, I love myself and therefore God must love me and God is a God of love. He has to love me. That's his job. But you notice here that what the writer says is that God so loved the world. And this is striking in the context. The Apostle John writes about the love of God throughout the Gospel of John, by my count, Seven times in the Gospel of John, he mentions God the Father's love for God the Son. Twelve times, John describes how God loves Jesus' disciples. Five times, he describes how the disciples must love Christ. And at least four times, perhaps more, he speaks about the disciples' love for one another. But this is a unique occurrence because here... He talks about the love of God, and he says that God loved the world. And that's a, a shocking admission from John's gospel. It might be shocking to you today, although many people assume this to be the case, although they misunderstand it. But there is a certain shock value to it because he, the object or recipient of God's love here, being the world, harkens back to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, Jesus, or the, the, the writer, John says this, the world was made through him, speaking of Christ, and the world did not know him. And so you see here, Jesus is using the same term for world and saying that God loved those who did not know him. That is to say, God shows his love for sinners. And furthermore, in the immediate context... There's another shocking aspect of the recipient, recipients of God's love here. Because in the context of this discussion with Nicodemus, surely Nicodemus would have understood that God loved his own people. God loved the Jewish people. Nicodemus would have known that. But you see, this is, text is expanding it beyond merely Jewish people to both Jews and Gentiles. So think about this for a minute. This text is telling us that God loved 
both Jews and Gentiles, and God loved those who by nature had rejected him as creator. This is shocking enough, but of course the text goes beyond that and tells us not only the shocking nature of the recipients of God's love, namely the world, Jews and Gentiles, sinners, but in fact the depth of God's love. You know, when the New Testament wants to show us the fullest extent of God's love, it doesn't just point to the circumstances of our lives, although your life and my life are evidences of the love of God, but rather it points us to one particular thing. When, when the Bible wants to show God's love to sinners who are in Christ, it draws our attention to the gift of the Son. And there's a phrase that's used here that's an evocative phrase from the Old Testament because what John 3.16 says is, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. This actually refers to an account in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22. Perhaps you remember what happened in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, the Lord has given Abraham a son in, in fulfillment of a promise he had made, the son Isaac. And then, at a certain point, we don't know exactly Isaac's age at the time, probably a young teenager, the Lord says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him on the mount, I will show you. If you read through Genesis 22, it's actually a very short account, but it's packed with all kinds of emotional content because what Abraham does is he goes to the mountain that the Lord told him, and he takes Isaac, and at a certain point, Isaac asks his father at the base of the mountain, Father, I see the implements for the sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? Of course, Abraham says, God will provide the lamb, and they proceed up the mountain, and if you know the story, you know how it plays out. Abraham takes his son and attaches him to the altar and is raising the knife to kill his son in fulfillment of God's command, and just as he has the knife raised, the Lord stops him and points to another sacrifice trapped in the thicket. But the Lord says something very important to Abraham. He says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son. You see, this is the phrase that the writer is using here that John is using in John 3.16. God so loved the world, surprising enough, but he loved the world to the extent that he gave his only son. There was a book written probably now about 40 years ago by a theologian, not a particularly reliable theologian, but a theologian nonetheless who, who wrote a, a small book called Lament for a Son, and it was a book about the death of his, his son in a climbing accident. His son was in his early 20s, and he was killed while climbing a mountain. And, 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 and in the in the introduction to the book, the theologian says something very profound. He says, if someone asks me, he's talking about being at a party or being introduced to someone, if someone asks me, tell me about yourself, I say, not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. It was so central to his identity 
even many years later. That he thought of himself as, as the one who had lost a son. And you see here in John 3.16, when the Bible wants to describe God's love for sinners, God's love for sinners, both Jew and Gentile, what he says immediately is, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now there's more to it, of course. Perhaps you'll have memorized this verse in the King James Version. And you'll know that in the King James Version, it doesn't just say only son. It says only begotten son. And that is important language. It tells us about the relation between the father and the son. That's highly significant theological language. But here, here what is emphasized is not primarily the relation between the father and the son. Although that's there and that's important. But the fact that he gave his only son. I wonder if you remember this truth when you're considering God's love for you. Very often when we're faced with challenges and trials, and we're tempted to question the love of God, we will often look to other ways in which God has helped us and realize that actually He's shown great care for us far more than, than we perceive and, and far more than we have any right to expect. But you know, when the Bible wants to ground the love of God, and there really can be no deeper grounding than this, the Bible says, you know, God, who is your father, is the one who gave his only son for you. We were reminded of these words this morning as we approached the Lord's table from Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not? Together along with us, together along with him, freely give us all good things. You know, the God of the universe, the creator, the creator who you by nature rejected, is the God who gave his only son for sinners. Well, if you know that God as your father through Jesus Christ, then that that should settle all doubts about his love for you. Because that's the reason why Paul says that in the context of Romans chapter 8. That's the reason why he can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who is there to condemn? He did not spare his own son. And if all this verse taught us was that our creator God loved this dark world which had rejected him so much that he sent his only son, that he gave his only son. If all it taught us was the glorious reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, if all we had from this verse was the astounding mystery of Jesus Christ, the God-man, that itself would be an astonishing paradigm-shifting, world-changing reality. That would change everything. But you see, in this verse, we learn that the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the sending of the Son, is not merely a display of God's love. It is also the means of our salvation 
from death and punishment and sin. And that leads us to the second major theme of this text, which is not only the love of God, but the saving benefit in this gift of love. Look at how the saving benefit is described here in John 3.16. Whoever believes in him should not perish. It's first described negatively as the removal of something. In this case, the removal of a curse. Should not perish. This has a number of dimensions to it. There's a, there's a future dimension to it that is highly significant. The Bible makes it clear that all of us not only are sinners by nature, but are sinners in our actions. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. You know this to be true if you're at all honest with yourself. All have sinned. It's easily verifiable. But not only have all sinned, but the Bible says, David confesses, in sin my mother conceived me. We're by nature objects of wrath. You look at the very first pages of your Bible and you look at Genesis chapter 3. After the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, immediately sin has this effect where it spreads and deepens. You notice, just read through Genesis chapter 3 sometime and realize immediately after the fall, immediately after that first sin, how many sins are immediately committed by Adam and Eve towards one another. And then in the very next chapter, you have the first murder. And you move a page or two over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. And it says, the Lord God looked down from heaven and he saw that all the thoughts of man's heart were always evil all the time. This is the picture that the Bible paints of humanity. And because of that, because of that pervasive sin, the Bible says that God as a just judge, has to do something about it. He has to judge sin for what it is. And that judgment, as it's played out in the future, is ultimately what the Bible calls the lake of fire, or the second death, or hell. These are uncomfortable topics, but they're topics about which Jesus spent a great deal of time. And they're topics that couldn't be clearer in the scriptures. In Revelation 20 it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And yet God loved the world, gave his only son, so that those who believe in him should not perish in this way. But there's also an effect that sin has right now. It's not simply the future judgment, as clear as that is in the scriptures. But there's also an effect of sin right now in ourselves and on our relationships and even in our mindset as we face death. The Bible talks about the effects of the incarnation on this in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer to Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's how the Bible describes us by nature. Subject to lifelong slavery. Subject at our deepest levels to the fear of death and the power of sin and Satan. And he partook of the same things 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death should not perish. Then notice there's a positive account of it as well at the end of verse 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. And this too has both a future component and a present component to it. The future component is, in one sense, uh, the opposite of what we've just seen. The opposite of perishing and punishment and the lake of fire is what Jesus says to his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. The Bible describes this with glorious vividness as well. We see these pictures in the book of Revelation of those gathered around the throne and worshiping the Lamb. And it says, they reign with Him forever and ever. This is a future aspect of eternal life. But in John's gospel in particular, he highlights the fact that that eternal life isn't just about the future, as glorious as that is, but rather there's an element that we are partakers of right now. In fact, the way Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1 is we are partakers of the divine nature being in Christ Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is the life of God in the soul of a man. It's a, it's a new quality and reality to our life. And it's not incidental that this comes right on the heels of Jesus' discussion of being born again, born of the Spirit. There is a new life that Jesus gives to those who are in Him. And yes, it has glorious realities, glorious consequences for the future and for eternity and for life after death. But, but the scriptures say, in fact, there's a change that happens right now as we're partakers of this divine nature. We see that men and women who are transformed by God's spirit through his son see things differently, have different priorities, different attitudes towards suffering. There's hope and meaning and comfort and purpose in their lives. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to believers and that He, the Holy Spirit, works in us. He intercedes when we don't know how to pray. He, he, he is at work changing us from the inside out. And this is so pronounced and so profound that John, the same apostle who is responsible for writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can later on in one of his letters put it this way. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And you think of the nature of a seed. It's something small, but something that has massive consequences. God's seed abides in him because he's been born of God. John's speaking of this same reality. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the question is, to whom does God give these blessings? He sent his son into the world out of love for the world. So we know that 
whoever the recipients are, it's not based on ethnic distinctions. It's not about Jew or Gentile. And we know, based on the fact that he's already introduced the world into this, that he's talking about sinners. But no, what does this text teach us? It teaches us that these great blessings, and indeed the knowledge of Christ itself, is received through faith alone. It's not to those who perform certain rituals. It's not to those whose good works outweigh their bad works. It's not to those who come from a certain family or have a certain background. No, what does he say? Whoever believes in him should not perish. It's to those who believe. This is the call that attaches itself to the announcement of God's love in John 3.16. And so then the pressing question that we have to reckon with is, what does it mean to believe in Him? There are a number of different ways we could define this. Perhaps most helpfully, theologians have said, well, first of all, it involves understanding the facts of who Jesus Christ is and what he's claimed and what he's done. We have to have a knowledge of those facts and we have to assent to those facts. We have to understand and know that those things are true. Yes, those realities are indeed the truth. Then, of course, we have to commit ourselves to that, entrusting our forgiveness and our life and our future to that Lord Jesus Christ about whom the Bible speaks, that one who is God in the flesh, who was crucified on our behalf, raised again for our justification and ascended into heaven, personally entrusting your life decisions to the truth of his word. So we're turning away from sin and self and turning to him and entrusting ourselves to this Lord who came. You know, we see uh, an outline of that several times in the book of Acts. One of the most interesting ones, I think, is the account of Lydia's conversion because we actually see her go through each of these steps. In Acts 16, it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said, so she comes to a knowledge of the facts that Paul's proclaiming in that case. And then it says she, she assents to this, she, she's baptized, her household is baptized as well. And then, and then as she speaks with the apostles, she says, have you judged me to be faithful to the Lord? If you have, come to my house and stay. And we see all of these things come into play. It's through faith alone, whoever believes in him. This is your only hope if you're an unbeliever. If you are outside of Christ hoping, thinking there might be some way you could be reconciled to your Creator. This is the only way. It's through Jesus Christ, and it's through faith in Christ alone. Not a technique, not another person or circumstance, not, a, not some superficial change in your life, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, and you shall be saved. If you're a Christian, recognize there's no possible pride in this. You can't take any personal pride in the fact that you are entrusting yourself and your life and your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ and to Him alone. 
It's, it's what the hymn writer says. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's what's being described there. And so the call of this text is to come to Jesus. To come and believe in him. And if you have come and you have believed, to recognize the great love that the Father has bestowed upon you and the great benefits that are yours in Jesus Christ, both now and to eternity. You know, it's striking that he speaks at the end of eternal life. That reminds us that Jesus' promise isn't just for the here and now, but it's forever. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, Jesus preserves those who are his. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it, as we serve the Lord together. It's a truth that gets repeated again and again in the scriptures. Have you ever noticed how often when men are called to serve the Lord, this is the great comfort that, you're, you'll, you, that they're given, that, that God will be with them. This is what Jesus says in the Great Commission. I'll be with you always. You remember when Moses is called, and Moses has all kinds of excuses about why he can't serve the Lord, even in the midst of his knowledge of God and his knowledge of what God has done. And remember, Moses makes all these excuses, and the Lord shows great patience. But the last word, the last word is the word that the Lord has. He says, but Moses... I will be with you. You see, this notion of eternal life conveys that for us. He'll be with us always. The salvation that Jesus provides is a salvation that goes on into eternity. And so, of course, we know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 to be true. If anyone is in Christ through faith, He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then Paul says what anyone must say when they're confronted with this truth. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And, and, and I implore you tonight, if you're not reconciled to God, to be reconciled to this God of love, this God of grace, this God who sent his only son, that we should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, for your word, we give you thanks. But, O oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We marvel at your Love, we marvel at your grace. You who are enthroned in unapproachable light have nonetheless sent to us your only Son. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for the eternal life that is ours in Him. We give you thanks for the meaning and purpose and hope that you have given to us in Him. We thank you for the confidence we can have that come what may, you will be with us always to the end of the age. Father, 
It is with grateful hearts that we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen.